Mark, you're muted. You're muted. Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. Please allow me to introduce you to our two sponsors, Matt Butler, President and CEO of Compass Clover Solutions. Matt. Good morning, thanks, and good afternoon, everyone. Most of us are visual learners, and that's why YouTube searches for how-to videos have grown 70% year over year. Learning how to fix things is much easier if you can see them. That's why we created our proprietary visual imaging process, to help you see for the first time how your current processes are actually causing your problems, which makes them much easier to solve. We'll work with your internal subject matter experts, helping them to clearly see how to improve efficiency, increase sales, and most importantly, increase profits. We're so confident in our process that we're always willing to take our compensation as a portion of your savings and increase profits. So if you want to reduce organizational stress and improve your competitive position, give us a call. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, John Custer, partner of Custer & Custer. John. Thanks, Mark. We are a family-owned law firm located outside Philadelphia. We work with entrepreneurs and family-owned businesses that range in size from startup to lower middle market. We provide services ranging from incorporation, employment and buy-sell agreements to vendor contracts and buying and selling businesses. There's no cost to tell us about your needs and depending on the project, we can quote you a flat rate. So please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have at CusterandCuster.com. John, thank you very much. Well, today's guest is someone that everybody in the venture world around the world knows. The Draper family has been impacting the world's economy since his grandfather, Tim's grandfather, General William H. Draper, founded Silicon Valley's very first venture capital fund, along with running the economic portion of the Marshall Plan for both Japan and Germany. He was also the first ambassador to NATO, started Planned Parenthood, and worked with Chairman Mao to develop the one-child policy. His father, Bill, who had spoken at the Angel Venture Fair, and talked about his own book, The Startup Game, is not only one of the great venture capitalists of all times who started the Sutter Funds, who is one of the investors in Skype, but also one of the finest gentlemen that you'll ever meet. Tim, we're so pleased to have you today and uh, look forward to hearing what you have to think about uh, the world of venture capital and to also talk about your book, uh, The Startup Hero. So, Tim. Terrific. You know, there's a woman um, uh, working, my wife fell off the roof and, and broke her elbow. And there's a woman working um, on her physical therapy and she's reading my book. <laughs> the physical therapist is reading my book. She felt like, hey, this is a great, uh, she read it before she met me, which is funny because I wouldn't think a physical therapist would benefit from it, but it turns out she's really enjoying it. I, so yeah, I, I, go ahead, try my book. Um, yeah, I think, uh, thanks for that introduction. I, um, I really appreciate the long history and the whole thing. And uh, my dad being a great pioneer of venture capital, my grandfather being such an innovator. Um, I, I've pretty much made it my mission to spread entrepreneurship and venture capital around the world. And now that that is pretty much done. 
um, my mission is to decentralize the world and uh, open all the borders. Uh, I think we're all better off when there isn't a trade war, there isn't a barrier, there isn't whatever, and uh, we can do business across borders. And so that's been a big part of my more recent life. Um, after I discovered Bitcoin, I started to think about um, how the blockchain and smart contracts and artificial intelligence are going to affect us. And I think they're going to affect us in a big way because you can now create an insurance company around those technologies. You put a little surveillance in and maybe an actuary and you have an insurance company. And mo much of what government does is insurance. And so, um, so these um, geographic borders that we have uh, placed in, put in place because we were all very tribal um, are now less relevant because we're global. And uh, I'm very excited about pushing and driving this new world that we have forward because I think we're all gonna be much better off for it. Um, now the tribal governments are, are pulling back and trying to resist it, but um, in, their, in some cases used COVID as a way to control their population. But uh, the smarter ones, are saying, yeah, hey, we, we want free trade, we want an open border, we want open markets, we want free markets, and some cool things are happening. So I will take that to venture capital. If you have a question, I can fire away. Well, I've got a bunch of questions for you that I've received from different people, So, and I've broken it down, so let's get started. What, what did you do before you became a third generation VC? I know you went to school for engineering and you went to Harvard Business School, but how, what did you do before you actually entered the VC world? Well, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had, um, I started uh, a board game company called Stanford the Game, and then I, I, I started an oyster delivery business. I guess that would have done well now. Um, I, I started uh, a variety of different businesses and then coming out of business school, I was, um, I was thinking that, there, that I had four ideas for, for businesses I wanted to start. And um, now in retrospect, uh, there was only one of the four that really became a big winner and that was digitized music. Um, but when I was gonna create something like an iTunes uh, I was going to work on building submarines. I was going to use um, uh, holograph. I was going to do holographic video, which still, I guess, hasn't happened. But now we got VR, so we're way past it. And the fourth was that I wanted to create a uh, a state up in the cloud that would hold people's assets so that they could continue to invest and then only when they repatriated would, their, would they pay their taxes. Um, and that uh, turns out that the, the law has longer tentacles than that and there really isn't a way of, uh, of having money compound outside and then repatriate uh, to pay. They, they catch you all the way. Um, so so, so that was my idea. I had four ideas and then I realized that um, I was going to have a lot more, and I was not cut out to just go after one. And that's when it dawned on me that, you know, that it was 
nature, maybe there was nurture too, but I was born to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> and you're maybe, you may have the best record of any VC, including your father in history. When you look at the wins you've had, well, what's the best part about it being a VC and what's the toughest part? The best part is when I meet a new entrepreneur that really has dedicated their life to something and I can see it in their eyes that nothing's going to stop them from taking me to this new world, that world that they've envisioned. Um, I, uh, I also like to look back and say, wow, we had some small part in the opening of communications for the world by, by doing the Hotmail and Skype deals. And they created free communications around the world. And that turned out to be incredibly valuable. Um, and so I'm, I'm very, I'm proud looking back, but, but uh, day to day, the thing I, that really gets me going is when I get to meet an entrepreneur who's, you know, energy is bursting out of their chest because of what they've, um, what they are, their big plans for the future are. How much has venture capital changed since you entered the field? Uh, it's it's changed a lot because I started by going around and, and I'd look for a new real estate development. I, I'd drive around, look for a new real estate development, and then I'd go knock on doors and and look wherever there was some company named Something Software. I would go knock on the door and I'd say, hey, I'm in the business of investing money. What do you, you know, is your CEO here? And I remember getting swept out of Intuit's uh, front office, their, their assistant said, no solicitors. And, and she almost like with a broom kind of swept me out of the office. So I was kind of knocking on doors. There still were a number of venture capitalists and they were, many of them were my father's friends. My dad had left the business bef about five years before I started uh, my business. And, uh, but a lot of his friends were still in the business and I had gotten to know most of them. And, uh, and, and it was a kind of a clique. It was kind of a, a gentleman's club or whatever of investors. They'd bring in an entrepreneur and they'd say, well, do you want to put in 20,000? You put in 20,000. They'd go back to the entrepreneur and say, you know, we got 40,000. We'll split the company 50, 50, and we'll see how it goes. Well, now venture capital has spread so far and so wide. And uh, the basics are that you back people that you think might have a great future and you, and you back businesses where you think that the, the company can make money. You back technologies that you think are sustainable. And, um, and so that, uh, turns out it's not that hard <laughs> to just be someone who looks at those three things. Uh, and so as a result, we've had a huge influx of new venture capitalists. And it's been really good for all the entrepreneurs out there. They've been able to raise money for whatever uh, vision or mission they have. Um, but uh, the other changes are that uh, we're we're paying a lot higher prices for these entrepreneurs. And uh, although I've got to say that that ends up being very cyclical, it doesn't, 
it doesn't stay high, it doesn't stay low. It, um, the, the valuations of private companies uh, rise and fall with uh, the amount of money going in to that market, just as like any industry. Um, and the money, amount of money going into the venture market is very much driven by how um, healthy the public markets are. Um, and we've been very healthy for a long time and that has bred many, many, many venture capitalists. So I have a lot of competition now where I didn't have much when I got started, but fortunately I have a long history with it. So that has, that, I think that helps, <laughs> I'm not how sure. Much, how, how much has COVID <laughs> affected the venture capital world? COVID is a big in, influencer. Um, it's interesting. I, um, since the markets were so hot, I was telling all my companies, raise as much money as you can, just don't spend it. And then when COVID came, I thought, whoa, the end has come. And I checked everybody and, you know, fortunately we didn't have too much triage to do. We, we, they were pretty much well supported going into it. But here's what's happened. The, <clears throat> the best, um, the, the entrepreneurs have gone two different ways. Either they come to me and they say, <clears throat> our revenues have gone to absolute zero. Anything in travel and restaurants and hotels and whatever. Our business has gone to zero and we're just going to cut everything back and we're going to hang in here until this thing recovers. And the other half of the entrepreneurs have said, this has accelerated my business. I can't believe how, um, you know, all of a sudden we've jumped from the early adopters all the way to the mainstream uh, consumer. And that's every, everything from VR to um, people getting Bitcoin wallets to um, <clears throat> technologies that are built around smart contract. All of these new technologies that, that we felt the entrepreneur was sort of pushing, 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 and <clears throat> it wasn't getting across the chasm. Um, COVID has made those jump across the chasm because if you're stuck in place, you, you go ahead and you say, well, hey, why don't I try VR? Put on the headset. You know, the Oculus things, boy, they can't, they can't sell. Uh, those, they're hopping off the shelves. And Bitcoin wallets are, are just booming because people are going, hey, maybe I should try this out. And then they go, oh, my gosh, I can keep my money on something that looks like this. I don't have to pay for all those guys dressed like this that are, uh, you know, dressed in fancy suits coming out of these big skyscrapers who are taking all my money and who knows what they're doing with it. All of a sudden I can put all my money right here and, uh, and I can move it, spend it, invest it. I can do lots of interesting things with it. So Bitcoin has really caught the imagination of a new group of people. It always had the early adopters and the believers and the hodlers and you know and now it's like the rest of the world is kind of going yeah this is better particularly because the u.s government printed two trillion and now eight trillion dollars uh any investor worth their salt knows that what that means is that the dollar becomes less valuable because there are more of them and people look for things places to put their money that are that are more stable <clears throat> or 
not suffering the dilution. And so Bitcoin, gold, Bitcoin, real estate, those are all places where people will look to put their money because they are less, um, they are not affected by the decreasing value of a dollar. So, uh, so that's kind of what's what I've seen happen. It's been a really interesting time. Oh, and venture capitalists with a lot of experience are um, are you know still in the business going forward, and venture capitalists that were just that sort of just arrived, if they hadn't raised a fund recently, they are shoring up their their. Uh, portfolios trying to keep trying to keep them as many companies in business as they can so uh, it does feel as though entrepreneurs have fewer options right now than they did before and the valuations have dropped significantly that's what I wanted to know is where the how much has valuations dropped when you're looking down an entrepreneurs pitching to you what do we, what kind of haircut are they taking um, the way I can describe it is that a, a Series A company is now taking a seed valuation. A seed company is having trouble getting any money at all. Um, and a Series B company is taking a Series A valuation. It's, it's dropped that much. So, um, yeah, I, I would say <clears throat> something that was a $50 million valuation four months ago is now a $20 million valuation, something like that. Wow, that is a significant cut. I had a group of angel investors representing different groups uh, in the very beginning, and they were saying that they weren't investing in new companies, they were re uh, shoring up the existing portfolio of companies. How long do you think this is going to last? Because I think this is going to be crippling our entrepreneurial community on a nationwide basis. So how long do you think this is going to last? Um, it's interesting. There are two things pulling at it. One is they're printing money. So um, they're, they're just flooding the market with money. So that, I think they're trying to create more demand so that these companies bounce back so that it's a, it's a V. Um, but the, the lockdown on the virus lasted a lot longer than any of them thought. And, uh, and so we are in a much tougher spot than just being able to print money to make these things come back. I think, you know, many companies are out of business for good for that's it. Um, on the positive side, um, the great entrepreneurs are redefining the world because the world has sort of come to a, an end the way we knew it. And now they're saying, okay, well now, What's the world going to look like after we're through with all of this? Uh, when we're ripping the masks off and we're hugging each other again. Um, I think that, that um, those entrepreneurs will redefine the world. And those are, that's where the next trillion dollar businesses are going to come from. It's the people who are pulling up right now, look at the world and saying, it's going this way. <clears throat> I can guide it toward this, and it can end up being something extraordinary. 
Another thing that's happened is 36 million people in the U.S., probably 10 times that many worldwide, are unemployed. This is uh, tragic, and, uh, and I, I see a dystopian world and a utopian world coming from that. The dystopian world is that everybody starts relying on the government for everything. And then we're stuck with a control-based system where we're all just sort of sheep doing whatever they tell us to do on media. Uh, the utopian world here is that all those people without jobs are starting to create and think and um, think for themselves and drive new businesses. And, uh, and you're gonna see the machine learning expert from the travel industry move into, you know, create machine learning for uh, the automotive or, or for the, uh, another, like the, the Zoom industry, some industry that looks very promising. Um, <clears throat> I think you're gonna see real innovation happening where when there's a shock like this, um, at first, everybody's glued to the and they're they're giving up their brain to the media and the politicians, and they're just saying whatever they say. That's what I'm going to parrot to all my friends. But after a little while, they start thinking for themselves, and they say, "Well, wait a second. You know, look at the numbers. The numbers say this wasn't really that bad. Of it's like a, a medium season." And then you say, well, wait, what was all this hubbub about? And yes, it's tragic for the families who lost people, but they lose people in the flu season too. Why is this significantly different? And why did we tear down the entire economy for it? Well, there are a lot of people starting to think that way. And so they're not going along with everything the news is telling them. They're saying, hey, you know, maybe what they're telling me isn't quite right, or, or maybe it's just one point of view, because there are these other points of view that are very powerful that I should be paying attention to too. So people start thinking for themselves. When they do that, they become entrepreneurial, they potentially have hero in them, and great things happen. Um, every time there was a shock, something really extraordinary happened. When the dot-com bubble burst, that was the beginning of Amazon and great things came from Google and all these great things came up from there. When the, the financial crisis came, brought everything to a halt, that was the beginning of Bitcoin and all of this new way of thinking about uh, currencies. And this, this crisis, I think, is going to have an equally big effect on, on moving, uh, moving progress forward. We're going to have a future that is defined by the entrepreneurs that come out of this moving forward. It's going to be a very exciting time. It's also Tim, a time Tim, where, where people, yeah. Has this, go ahead, finish what you're going to say. I, I, I want to know if the investment. Well, it's also a time where, where um, people are, are rethinking their tribalism. They're rethinking the geographic borders, the um, non- trade, non-tariff barriers, the, all of the things that are keeping us from each other, because they realize we're all kind of in it together. And they, they go, well, wait a second, aren't we better off when we can trade with China? Aren't we off when we have 
you know, uh, when we're allowing people from other countries into this country, aren't, aren't we generally better off when, uh, when the world is open? Uh, and I think people are recognizing that and then they're saying, well, wait a second, um, why, why do we still have currencies that are tied to geographic territories when we've got these new currencies that are global and transparent and open? Um, why aren't we using Bitcoin? Why are we using dollars that they can just print willy-nilly and, and they, you know, now I hold on to a dollar and I think of it as a hot potato. It's like, whoa, you know, how do I, how do I move this out? Because uh, what I really want is something that's going to hold its value, like a Bitcoin or, or something else. Um, so I'm thinking that this may be the opening of a, a global citizenry where governments become more service oriented, where they are providing better service to people around the world and not necessarily only to the people that are in their geographic location so that they have to compete for us or be accountable to us. That, that is the beginning of a new way of thinking. It's moving from tribal to global, and I think we're all gonna be better off. Because think about it, just because, it, you know, I mean, whoever creates these nuts has to compete with all the other people who create nuts. The people who create the smartphone, they have to compete with the other people who create the smartphone. Well, governments have always had these monopolies in their territory, but now they can actually compete across border. You can have a government that is 11 miles offshore or up in space that provides better service for lower costs, lower taxes than any of the existing governments that we have. So this is the beginning of potentially a new way for humanity to operate where governments like businesses have to compete for us and provide so Tim, better service for the money. Tim, what <clears throat> industries what industries were you really excited about a few months ago that you're not excited about now and what industries are you now focusing on that you're looking over at the next six months that that's going to be your focus and also right now is a great buying opportunity based on the discount you just told me that entrepreneurs are going to have for venture capitalists like you who have significant resources, this is like the best thing that could almost happen. Yeah, um, <clears throat> well, the industry that I'm, I'm weighing right now is the travel and leisure industry. I don't think people are gonna stop traveling, but I, you know, I just, <laughs> I just saw a video where, where they showed Venice I said, honey, do you want to go to Venice to my wife? And she said, no, like her immediate reaction was, I don't want to travel right now. And, and I was thinking, wow, you know, nobody's there. <laughs> you know, we, we would yeah. have the run of the place. And, you know, the, the virus has gone through its spike and it's pretty much gone. I was thinking that that was a pretty good idea. Well, I think it may be that people, they've gotten settled in place for so long that they've gotten a little lazy and I don't think that they're going to be out as much. I also think that like I made when I was in the heat of it, I, I'd make six trips to China in a year. I, I would think with Zoom and everything, <clears throat> it might be like more like one or two that I do instead. And that 
will reduce the amount of travel and that will make travel less attractive, which will further reduce the amount of travel. It'll be less attractive because there will be fewer flights. Um, <clears throat> so I think travel, that's the one where I thought, you know, hey, this is gonna be great for years and years to come because the world's opening up. We wanna go see it. We all wanna travel. We all wanna see it. Um, now, uh, I think that's gonna take a while to come back. I think um, I, before and after the virus, I, I thought banking is probably running right about at its all-time peak forever. Because uh, I don't think, I think within a year or two, all the same services that, are, that a bank provides are gonna be provided through um, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And, uh, and people will not want, if you're given the choice between a currency that's tied to political forces and one that has a limited amount or is governed by its owners, um, like Tez, uh, you are gonna have a, uh, a real, that, that choice will, will weigh on the side of the, um, away from the banks. They will not do well. So I think banks and insurance companies are, are going to be changed forever. And uh, because I think I can create an insurance company with um, a smart contract, an actuary, and some surveillance. Um, and I don't need a bunch of lawyers telling my client that they aren't going to get paid their their claims. And I I don't need, you know, some somebody, may, a collection agency, making sure I get my premiums paid. I can actually do that all automatically on the blockchain. And if a if if your house fell down, we're going to see it from the satellite. If the winds blew at 120 miles an hour through your street, yes, we will believe that your your car turned over in that storm. I, I think um, we have an opportunity to change insurance, change bank, change government, uh, and then healthcare. Healthcare has taken an enormous leap through COVID because what everybody's recognized is that it's the dry labs that are making all the difference. The wet labs are years and years away. The dry labs are all using computational chemistry looking at the disease, running lots of simulations against it, and then clicking and saying, okay, let's try this. And that's going to change the whole nature of healthcare. And that's, that's the therapeutics. The diagnostics were already being changed with a company called um, Cloud Medics that, uh, that just uses data. And they are outperforming average doctor already in diagnosing illnesses. Uh, and when combined with a doctor, they do even better. And that's all using medical records. But if you start adding things like your genetic history and your blood test results and your Fitbit results and the airplane seat you sat on and where you lived and who your, who your good friends are and all that, all of that data, um, no doctor could ask enough questions to compile all of that data and then make a diagnosis. And so I think we're going to see healthcare going through major changes 
And that's going to be driven by some of these great entrepreneurs. So, so healthcare, insurance, government, um, banking, these are the biggest industries in the world. You know, the internet affected communications, information, taxis, hotels. Those are big industries, but they weren't the trillion dollar industries. This is the trillion dollar, these are the trillion dollar industries. So I'm very excited as a venture investor to fund companies that are going after those trillion dollar industries. So what's the profile and skill set of the great entrepreneur going forward? What kind of skill set are they going to need to navigate this change of world? Now, I got to believe that this pandemic is not going to be the first one we're going to see, that these things are going to be more frequent now. Um, well, let's, let's hope not. I, I don't put that into the universe. <laughs> well, um, I think, I think every great entrepreneur has to have persistence. Uh, there's a company called Nantero who that does nano memory and uh, you know nanotech memory, and they've been 20 or 30 years in the process, and now finally it's starting to be you know something that really matters to everyone in the world. That's going to be a big win, but it took a long, long time. I think entrepreneurs have to have that that perseverance, that drive, that, that determination to go very far and, and to, I always ask the question, why are you doing this to the entrepreneurs? Because if they ask, I'm doing it for them to make money or I, I'm doing it to make you money, sometimes they're very clever, doing it to make you money. Those aren't good enough because when things get tough, they bail, they, they're the rats leaving the sinking ship. But when things are good, um, when, when an entrepreneur is a true entrepreneur, whether it's good or bad, they are in it for the long haul. They're gonna stick it out. They're gonna just drive this business. They, they, they're such believers, they just have to make it work. And, uh, and eventually most of them do. Most companies, startups that we back that go out of business, we're usually like a month to six months going out of business too early because their customers were just coming. So you gotta be able to live, just stay alive, keep your company alive. And that, that may mean you have to let people go now so you can hire them back later. It may mean that you need to raise more money than you thought you did. It may mean that you need, this is the most important thing, you need to make your customer your source of money because venture capitalists can be very fickle and during a time like this, they may be long gone and you've got to figure out how your happy customer is going to pay you. And once that starts happening, then you don't have to rely on the financial markets to get your money. So those, all those things I think are going to be very important for entrepreneurs in the next three or four years. What's the common mistakes entrepreneurs make when they're presenting to you? Um, you know, uh, the most dangerous to me are the ones who are really good salespeople and they've, they've, they've checked me out and found my weak spots and they know exactly how to phrase something and they say, oh, that thing you did is just right and they butter me up and then they come and they pitch me, um, that, is, that tends to be where we lose the most money. 
Um, I would say the, the best entrepreneurs are the ones who come in and they are real and they, they say, we are doing this. We don't care if it's you or somebody else. This is the train, it's leaving the station. You wanna get on or not, you've gotta, I've gotta feel like you've painted this picture of the future and I'm a total believer. And if I believe that picture of the future, then I am, um, I'm all for it. You know, I'm, I, I, I have to invest. It, it has to, you know, it has to come from my heart. Uh, if it, it doesn't really matter, you know, you know, it'd be nice if you took a shower before you came in, but that stuff doesn't matter. It's, it's more important to just have that real belief and that real passion that says, I am going to do this. And then the, the companies that made us the most money, it's really weird. They, they all said the same words. I am going to delight my customer. And they, they said it, it just spewed out of them. And they, that ended up being Skype and Baidu and Tesla. And I mean, it, it ended up being some of our biggest winners where, where people said they wanted to delight their customer. So having a vision and then having that, that love for the customer, I think those are the two things that really can, um, can make it happen. And, and we can see it. I mean, I, I get pitched every day, all day, somewhere between eight and 15 times a day, I, I meet entrepreneurs. Well, you know, it's, it's less likely that you'll, you'll be able to bamboozle me than it was maybe when I was just getting going. But if you're but really if into you it, Marvel magazines, I will I'll read it. That, right? If What's I that? send you some Marvel comic books, I get money from you. I love Marvel comics, you know. <laughs> I read that in your, in your Startup Hero book. So, Tim, um, the ones that you did invest in and they didn't work out, did you learn anything from that? Yeah, and, and the things that usually go wrong are usually, um, sometimes they just spend the money too fast. They, they think, oh, I raised money, so now I can go spend it. Um, whenever you raise money as an entrepreneur, you gotta think of it as your, your war chest. You put it away. You just say, great, we raised that money. And, um, and, and then the other thing, so a lot of them just spent too much money too fast because if you do, then you've got lots of people working for you. And then when things get tough, you, you got to let them all go. Or the ones who say, I'm never going to let them go, then they run right into a wall and it's just a huge disaster. Um, the other things that can go wrong are as if both the founders want to be CEO um, and they like, and we can spot this if they both come into the meeting and they talk over each other instead of waiting for each other to talk and having good respect for each other. Um, and then, uh, and then we've had, uh, occasionally it's been, uh, science that is just too early for the market. So that has, uh, that has been a problem, um, it, where, where we, we got all excited about what the science could do. Um, and the, the scientists were sort of looking at our money as it as if it were a grant rather than an investment. 
And, uh, and that's happened to us a few times. And then really good salespeople um, will oversell us and we'll fund the, them. And then they, they start thinking that we're their source of money. And so they just keep selling us. And at some point we go, that's enough. And that's the end of the business. Um, you know, the best ones are just like, hey, this is what I've done all my life. This is exactly what I want to do. And we think we can get in, wedge into this market and grow and grow and grow. And uh, if we do, this is going to be a really big business. And that that can um, that's where we really get our, our best results. What's the future for women entrepreneurs? I mean, I've seen more and more of them coming along, but how, how do you feel about them as investors? How much of your portfolio is invested in women? Where, where are they figuring? What's the future? Yeah, we, we've got uh, women in the founding team, about 40 or 50% of our companies now. Wow. And it's really because the women who are starting businesses now are pretty unique. Um, at Draper University, we, we uh, you know, say, said, hey, we're open for business. We're starting this school. It's for heroes. Come be a hero. Come be a, a great entrepreneur, and we're going to help you get there. Um, only about 12 or 13% of the people who applied were women. But the women who applied were extraordinary. Um, we've done some things to make it so that it's more like 40% women there because it, it doesn't make sense to have a school that's 80, 88% men. Um, it gets a little, a little crazy, actually. Um, the, uh, but we're, uh, we're real believers in the idea that an entrepreneur looks at the world differently. The women who are starting businesses clearly are looking at the world in a new way. Um, I, my guess is that it's rare, but some might have had mothers that were entrepreneurs too. Um, probably none of them had grandmothers who were entrepreneurs. So the role models were, were not there. So these are unique people doing unique things. And, uh, and whatever part of the team they are, it's, uh, they, they always add a lot to a team. And, uh, and when the woman is the sole driving force behind the uh, entrepreneurial venture, um, that can be really powerful. Generally, they're, they're good managers um, because they, they're willing to subvert their own egos and let everybody else thrive around them. Um, it, it, they, they have, uh, you know, I've been back, I've, I've been backing women for many years now, um, uniquely. I don't think there are very many venture capitalists who did look at it that way. Um, and uh, the other thing is uh, that you, if you're backing an, a woman, you've got to make sure that she has it in her mind that she is going to take over the world with this business. Uh, not that it's just going to make some money and, and then she can have a nice lifestyle. Um, and that, and that is, uh, it's more often that the man says, I'm going to go take over the world than it is the woman. And woman, to be a great entrepreneur, you kind of have to say, I'm not quitting until this is a $200 million, $200 billion business. Um, it, it's got to be in their heart and soul. It's too important for them 
nothing's going to stop them and they're just going to drive it home. So that's what I look for in the women entrepreneurs. How do you encourage them to apply to Draper University? How, what's your outreach to get these women? Well, we've done a lot of interesting things. Um, we, we, we did the Draper uh, startup competition at Smith College, and now that's the biggest female business plan competition in the world. Uh, so we started something that's kind of a big deal now. Now it had to be virtual this year, but you know, whatever. We're, 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 we did make a big impact there. Um, we also um, did a great, uh, uh, we, we worked out a great thing with the Saudi government. And uh, we had about 100 students from Saudi come to Draper University. We, they come from all over the world. We have, uh, we've had 1,200 students and they've come from 86 different countries. And they've gone off to start 350 companies and those companies have become great things. Well, it's interesting. The Saudis are really opening up and, and 78% of those 100 Saudis were women. Wow. They want to be, they're saying entrepreneurship is my ticket. I am going to control my own destiny. I am going to make something great happen. And those Saudi women are extraordinary. I have, uh, you know, I could go on and on. This, this show is, isn't long enough for me to tell some of the stories of what these Saudi women were willing to, you know, fall on their sword about. But um, that, I think, Muslim women in general are starting to be freed up and they are becoming incredibly entrepreneurial. And that has, that's a real positive thing. And, and it's getting Draper University to be more closer to 50-50. So I, I want to talk about global entrepreneurship. You know, to me, it used to be that America's competitive differentiator was our entrepreneurial spirit. But now the statistics are showing over the last five to 10 years, the number of new companies being started and entrepreneurs that actually going in reverse. I thought it for sure when people were talking about all these schools offering classes in entrepreneurship. So why is American, Americans uh, developing less com uh, companies and what countries are really hotbeds that we're competing against. Yeah, um, those are, that's a fabulous question. And here's, here's my answer. It has to do with regulations. If, if we're stuck in a country with a bunch of regulations, those regulations affect everything from the $200 billion business down to the business with a woman and a man and dog um, that that's wrong-headed if you want entrepreneurship you want people to be able to take chances you want them to be able to experiment and explore and try things without being slapped down the moment they start something um, you know that we we had the SEC came down there are two guys who started some business that was going to be a new way of like betting on the on these companies and whatever, and all of a sudden the SEC comes and slaps them with a fine, knocks them out of business, and they don't even get to see how it might have worked. Um, the SEC also came down very hard on, uh, but 
that wasn't the SEC as much the lawyer's interpretation of the regulations. Um, okay, we had the crypto world by the tail. Uh, first Switzerland had it, and then they overregulated, and then we had it. We had a big opportunity. Well, all of a sudden, we we start saying, no, you've got to comply with these 80-year-old rules, the, the 33 Act and the 40 Act. You've got to comply with these 80-year-old rules in, in when, you're, when you're looking at this new crypto world. Well, what that meant was the entire market for airdrops disappears. It's no longer in the U.S. No one in the U.S. can do an airdrop because they've made it illegal because of some interpretation, some law from 1933. So we're stuck and these regulations, they pile on top of each other in the U.S. It's, it's not like they're, um, and, and, and the lawyers look at them and say, well, yeah, it worked that way and so it has to work that way so then they 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 kind of mesh it together and then we have a double heavy regulation and then another one comes in and it's quadruple and and all those regulations send a bad message to an entrepreneur they say don't start it here they say don't start your business in the u.s because we're going to regulate you out of existence and that definitely happened with this crypto world. My gosh, this crypto world is going to make and break all sorts of countries. China got all cramped down. They made Bitcoin illegal. And Japan said, Bitcoin's a national currency in Japan. Well, all of a sudden, all the entrepreneurs migrate to Japan because they, they move out of China and they go to Japan because they say, hey, this is a much more friendly environment for me, for what I'm trying to do. I think regulators need to let stuff happen and let a few, you know, a few, few buildings burn. It, it, people have to kind of be brave again. They have to be, this has to be land of the free, home of the brave. They got to be brave again. They got to be willing to take a risk on something and before they slap some regulation down on them. So what countries are really promising right now? Well, I would have said China until they, they got President Xi who decided he was gonna be the dictator and he was gonna, everything is his now. And it's all under his control. They've lost a lot of their entrepreneurial spirit. Um, today, I would say, this is weird, but Europe, and India, and I'll tell you why Europe. India, because it's the Wild West and it's so exciting and uh, some, and so many of the young people went through engineering as their, uh, as their education, that, that they're coming up with all sorts of interesting things in India. Europe used to control the world and they used to run the world and everything was fine. And then they had the, you know, that was when they were the kings of the world. And now, then they had the wine and cheese generation. And that's when they put in all their regulations. And now there's this like entrepreneurial undertone that's kind of going, you know, we, we're, we don't run the world anymore. <laughs> we got to do something about it. And, uh, and, and so I think that something, I got to think something's coming uh, in Europe, both East and Western Europe.
what it's countries? It's not Russia. It's not China. It looks like Macron is doing something in France. Oh God, he's that's such a mess. But but I'm thinking of uh, think of Sweden. Sweden, they made it through this virus pretty much unscathed. I mean, they they had deaths, and it was roughly the same as most of the other Euro European countries. But they didn't shut down their business. I mean, that's going to attract entrepreneurs from all over Europe. They're going to say, "Wow, they they believe in us. They believe in business." Um, and uh, and then I think you know the UK is going to have some sort of resurgence because they they've been so crushed by this Brexit thing and the, the pound falling and stuff. It's, they will probably have a resurgence. They've always had a lot of great innovation coming out of there. Um, France always baffles me. The, um, and the Southern European countries, well, I can't say that. I'll, I'll pick, pick them out. Greece and Italy um, have been so, I don't know, I, I'd say, poorly run or whatever, it's socially socialist run for so long that there is no incentive for the young people to go out and build a business and build a life there. Um, they're just kind of holding on for, with all the old people. Uh, and so they're all trying to emigrate out. Um, Portugal's been really good. Uh, so I think they're emigrating to Portugal because Portugal has been encouraging entrepreneurship. They know that that's important. They know that light touch regulations end up uh, making for a great environment for entrepreneurs. Um, Malta has taken the whole crypto world. Uh, they, you know, they took, Binance went from China where they were declared illegal to Singapore where Singapore added a whole bunch of regulations to them to Malta where they said, Sure, we'll take you. There, there has been a rise of the small country because if you're, if you're the, the president of a small country, you're looking and you're saying, how do, I, how do I fight above my weight class? And one way to do that is to, uh, is to simplify and deregulate and, and encourage entrepreneurship in your country and the other way to do it is to compete outside of your country. So Estonia, for instance, has this e-governance program where they, 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 the prime minister of Estonia came to Draper University and he spoke and he said, by instituting digital signatures, I saved 2% of the GDP. And then I did digital voting and all the young people started to vote. Then I did digital entity and the uh, crime rate went down, the business climate improved. And then I, I did this virtual residence card. And now there are about 150,000 residents, meaning they don't actually have to live in Estonia. They, they're not Estonian citizens, but they can do business anywhere in the EU. They can uh, set up a bank account, uh, buy real estate. They can do any number of things as virtual residents. Well, to me, that means that they can start providing government services cross-border, and it doesn't have to be tied to a physical location. And since then, 
Malaysia has done a virtual residency program and Kazakhstan is working on a virtual citizenship program to have Kazakhs all over the world. It'd be kind of fun because Kazakh means free. Um, it's gone the other way, but uh, I, I think that the Kazakh leaders are saying, hey, how do we attract entrepreneurs? How do we encourage more of these people to come and start businesses? And one way to do it is to free up the country. Hey Tim, what do you read? What what books would you recommend to entrepreneurs and magazines or online publications? What do you read? Can you hold up that book you had just a minute ago? Just. Of course. There you go. How to be the startup hero. Yeah. Um, by Tim Draper. And my dad's book's fantastic too, which you should also read. Yeah, the startup game. game. It's great. Um you know, what I read, I read, um, well, I love classics. I read the Bible, the Koran, the Book of Mao, uh, the, um, oh God, Book of Mormon, <laughs> not the play, the other. Um, I read, um, I, I read, I love Shakespeare. I love poetry. I love science fiction. Um, and so science fiction, because what happens in science fiction is your imagination, I read comic books, um, your imagination starts to wander and it goes to these places where you kind of go, yeah, interesting, the world could go in that direction. And then, oh, interesting, it could go this way. So I, I read both utopian and dystopian science fiction. But do you read I, any business um, magazines? I love, uh, yeah, I do. I, I like The Economist um, because what it does is it, it brings it all down to, you know, and you only have to read it once a week. It brings it all down to not just like, hey, this is what happened to the Kardashians today or here's some fear I'm selling you or whatever. Um, instead, it's, um, it's kind of an anal a week-long analysis of what's happened during the course of the week. And, um, and then of course I read thousands and thousands of business plans. <laughs> and do and they, that, they come um, from all over the world? view to what the future looks like. Huh? Uh, they come from all over the world, the plans you're reading? Oh yeah, because we have, um, the Draper Venture Network spans 24 relationships in 48 different cities around the world. Um, and I've actually made investments in, I believe, 60 countries around the world. Uh, so when you make a new investment in a new country, the word gets out and you start seeing more deals from that country. In fact, I, almost any airport in the world, if I walked through almost any airport in the world, well, before this COVID thing, um, I would get two or three business plans just from walking from one side to the other. Wow. How long do you give an entrepreneur to present to you? When, when, they, when somebody gets a chance to actually get in front of you, how long do they get? Um, that varies. Uh, uh, it's, um, I mean, if they, they've just cornered me at the airport, it's usually like 30 seconds. But it's, um, I can usually get the gist of it in about uh, 10 minutes. Um, 
I usually give, if they come into the office, I usually give them about 30 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes. And then I might, if I am still peppering them with questions, we'll go over. Um, I don't like meetings to go too long because um, I want to, I want to get to the meat of it as quickly as possible and get through, you know, what, how are you going to make money? What do you do? What's the future look like? How do the big companies respond to this when it becomes successful? You know, why are you doing it? Those kinds of questions I go through and I can usually get through those in about 10, 15 minutes. And then uh, there are always questions that are specific to the company and follow-ups and how does it work and why, you know, who's this person, what do they do, you know, those kinds of questions and, and what's your background. Um, how so does those somebody are the questions you, you should expect. And uh, one of the entrepreneurs I'm Tim were... at draper.vc. The best way, Tim at draper.vc. It's my email address. But don't send me spam or you'll be off forever. Don't send me some promotional thing. All I want to see are business plans. Only business plans. So think it all through before you use this email address. Tim at draper.vc. So Tim, I got one more question for you. Should venture capital be taught in uh, middle school, high school, college, where should they start teaching entrepreneurship? I mean, entrepreneurship. When should they? When yeah. should people start learning that? Because I think it's a great foundation for everything. Yeah, both. Um, I I started BizWorld. My my daughter, um, she was nine years old, and she asked me, "Daddy, what do you do? Where do you go?" And uh, and rather than telling her right there, I created a simulation in her class uh, where, where uh, she liked friendship bracelets. And so we created a friendship bracelet manufacturing um, industry in her class. We broke everybody into teams of six and we did design day and manufacturing day, market day and finance day. And uh, all the way along, they kept track of their money. And then at the very end, I explained, you know, and, and, we also had venture capitalists invest in those companies with fake money. And at the end, I explained how the venture capitalists had done, you know, whether we had made money or lost money. And that was how I explained to my daughter how it worked. Well, we, it was a big success. So we, I did it for my son too. And then I made a video and then I created a nonprofit and uh, that has been spreading around the world. Um, it's called BizWorld, and we've, uh, I think, 600,000 people have now taken the course. Um, it's a, it's a four or five day course, and uh, the teachers love it. it. It's a great, great program. So I don't think, I think, I think it's never too early to put something into a kid's head, and then, um, and then from there, you let it blossom in whatever way. It, can blossom. I, I, you know, I would teach the nine-year-old pretty much everything I possibly could because that's when, that's when they're a real sponge. And I would do it in, in all fields, business, poetry, 
science, science fiction. The thing I would teach that no one seems to teach is science fiction. That I think should be a part of every fifth grade class. And I think it should follow them all the way so that they're reading Dune when they're in college and Foundation and some of these really Why? great um, science fiction works. Why? Why? Yeah. Why? Because, yes. um, because I, want, I want people's uh, minds to expand and I want them thinking about the future. Um, if they're just thinking about the present <clears throat> or the past, I mean, we teach history. Why don't we teach science fiction? It's just, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin. And we spend a lot of time teaching history. I think we should spend as much time teaching science fiction. It gives people, an, <clears throat> in fact, maybe more, because with science fiction, it is their future. What's their life going to look like going forward? Um, and I think we need to do much better job of teaching um, money to students. Um, I think they really need to know how money works. I don't think uh, that's something you hide from your kids. You got to give them an allowance. You got to give them a job, mow the lawn, do the groceries, do the take the garbage out, whatever. Get money for it. Go to the toy store. Get a toy. <clears throat> there has to be a and then get them investing as soon as possible. All my kids, I think they were seven or eight years old on average. I started um, talking to them about investing and now three are venture capitalists and the fourth is very well versed in investments. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a healthy thing people should learn. And, um, and then if everybody learned it, if everybody learned how to invest, we wouldn't have these stupid rules of the 33 Act and the 40 Act because it would be buyer beware and everybody would understand it. Um, but now we're like protecting ourselves from ourselves. And I don't think that's healthy. That's not healthy for any society. The best societies, the societies that, that become the wealthiest and the most effective and the most, uh, progress, the most progress happens there, those are the free societies. Those are the ones with the least regulation, the most can-do attitude, the ones that are brave and free. So Tim, do you have any last uh, advice for the entrepreneurs who are listening to this? Yeah. Um, first, put your business plan together and send it to me. Um, we, we have a lot of ways to get you moving forward, get you further along. Um, if you think you're too early at apply to Draper University, um, keep an eye out for Draper startup, startup houses around the world. That's something that we've done. We've got these places where entrepreneurs can learn from each other and they're very friendly to entrepreneurship. Um, and then think through why you're doing it. Make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Make sure Picture the world if you are incredibly successful. If your business becomes this incredibly huge <clears throat> monster success, beyond a unicorn, a rhino, 
a fat unicorn. Big, huge success. What does the world look like when you're done? And is that a world you want to live in? Is the world? And uh, because that's the question I always ask. Before I write a check, I say, what's the world going to look like if this works? A lot of venture capitalists always tell you what all the risks are and all the problems. And the only thing I care about is what if it works? How big does it get? And how important is it? And how good is it for the world? And those, you put all those things together, go for it. If you, if you have answered all of those to your own satisfaction, go for it and don't let anything stop you. And if there's a regulatory body in one country that gives you a hard time, go to another country. Let, make them fight for you. The, you are way too important. If you can answer positively to all those questions, and you also know how you're going to make money because you, you are not going to make anybody happy if you're not making money. No great business was ever created without making money. They had to figure out some way of making money because then if you make money, you can spread. You can spread your business around the world. If you're just like always pulling money from other people so that you can you know, uh, drill a well in the Congo, you're not doing nearly as much good for the world as say Google does by giving all that information to them on how to drill their own well. Think it all hey, through Tim, before you jump. Do they send you a PowerPoint or a, a Word document business plan? What do they send you? Oh, whatever their favorite is. We, we, we'll read it in whatever form it comes. It could come, but, but just make sure you cut to the chase. Make sure you tell us right off the bat, here is what we do. This is why it makes money. This is why it's going to be important for the world. And this is why I am the right person to do it. You answer Should they already questions. be making money? <clears throat> no, they just have to know how they're going to make money. Excellent. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. My pleasure, Mark. I'm you are a great interviewer. You oh, did thanks. a beautiful job. Thank you. You got Thank me going you. in all ways I didn't know I'd go. Well, I hope I hope you put a house in Philadelphia. <laughs> I should. Hey, Thank we you. need I need a backup plan to California for sure. And we have all the colleges and universities here. We have 83 of them sitting right here and nobody like you here. Ooh, I'd love to come. Well, I do go to Wharton once in a while to speak and I Wait, what's, oh, you, is Penn, Penn's there too, right? Yeah, right. That's yeah. Wharton. Oh, yeah, Penn is Wharton. What are the other two? <laughs> well, you've got Drexel, you have Temple. You have great schools here with great oh, yeah, entrepreneurial great. programs with great, great kids. Great. I should. I should. I should get out there. Yeah. Um, Your dad was good, here. Good he thought you. You, should have, you should have an office here in Philadelphia because he felt like nobody was here taking advantage of everything that was coming out of here. That's true. We need, you know what we need? We need some students to come to Draper University for our five week program so I can get to know them from Philadelphia. So I can get to know them and I can say, hey, maybe we need to set up a venture fund here in, in Philly. Uh, do you have scholarships for our kids to come there? Uh, we do, uh, but we think if you're really an entrepreneur, you can probably figure out how to get that money. And how much does that cost to come to Draper? Oh, it's $12,000 for the um, 
offline school, it's five weeks, or it's $500 for the online school. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tim, uh, stay healthy. We look forward to, uh, maybe we can pick it up again and talk to you again in six months or so. All right, stay, bra stay brave and stay free, Mark. All right, take care, great seeing you. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.